Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let me pray. Lord, we come to you acknowledging our need for you as we look at the text. As we meditate on who you are and what you've done and how it is you teach us to pray and how that connects with Christmas and your coming, Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding and that you would give us hearts that would be repentant of our sin and rejoicing in your truth and in the cross of Christ. And that you would be exalted in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christmas is the time of the year that we all celebrate the birth of Jesus. And different families celebrate the birth of Christ in different ways. Um, Our family has a little tradition that we do that lasts for four weeks, and we're not as devoted to it as we ought to be, but we try to do what's called an Advent devotion, which lasts for four weeks, and there's about four to five devotions per week. And we go through and we talk about Jesus. We talk about the prophecies of the coming of Jesus. We talk about the events surrounding his birth, etc. with the kids. We sing a song, a cappella, which is awful. Teresa can sing well. I'm butchering it. She's laughing at me most of the time. That's generally how it goes. It's really bad. Trust me. I can't read music. And so we sing the song and then we light the candle and the kids blow out the candle and have a nice time. Well, one night we were talking about what the miracle, what's the greatest miracle of Christmas? And, uh, as we were talking about it, Jared raised his hand and, and I thought, you know, the kids are going to say the virgin birth, but why would they think it's a miracle? They're six and eight, right? They're not. What big deal? Virgin birth. Who cares? He had a mom and a dad. And big... But they said, this is what Jared says. He looks at me and he says, it's that the almighty God became a baby. I thought to myself, man, that kid has some profound theology. And I was a proud dad. And then he looked and said, dad, what does an almighty baby look like? And he starts doing this kind of, (laughs) he doesn't quite get it yet, but on the right track, Christmas is supremely the time in which we celebrate God becoming a man. So you might wonder why. I would start a Christmas sermon by reading the Lord's Prayer. 
What do the birth of Jesus and prayer have to do with one another? I've been preaching a series on prayer, and usually what a pastor does is he's in a series. When he comes to Christmas, he usually takes a break from his series and preaches a special sermon on Christmas. But it's my desire to show you this morning how nothing has more to do with prayer than Christmas. How could that be? Well, look at Matthew 6, verse 9. Starts off saying this. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Jesus is preaching the famous sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. He starts off in this sermon in chapter 5, talking first about the character of a true disciple. And then in chapter 6, he gets into what the religious devotion of a true disciple looks like. And in the midst of talking about the religious devotion of a true disciple, he talks about fasting, he talks about prayer, he talks about giving to the poor. Well, as he talks about prayer, he teaches us how to pray. And he actually says this. This is how you pray. Pray then like this. Notice he doesn't say, repeat these words after me over and over again. He doesn't say this is what you should pray. He says this is how you should pray. I'm not saying it's wrong to say the Lord's Prayer or to repeat it. But if we think that just repeating the Lord's Prayer is some kind of magic incantation that gets God to do what we want, if you think that's what it is, we're wrong. The Lord's Prayer is a model for how we pray. And as he starts off the model for how we pray, he starts with an address to God. In other words, when you pray like this, Pray like this, our Father who's in heaven. Start by addressing God as who he is, our Father in heaven. And in this simple address, he tells us more about God than I have time to really explain to you this morning. But I want to get to what I think is the basics of it. He starts off saying this, God is both in heaven And he is our father. What does he mean by in heaven? In heaven, he means he's not of this earth. He's wholly other, transcendent, majestic, glorious, all-powerful, holy. Knowing that that's the God who we pray to both humbles us and gives us great confidence. It humbles us because we realize That we have no right to pray to a God who's holy, holy, holy when we are sinners. No right. We have no right to pray to a God as Isaiah explains him in Isaiah chapter 66. Who is so immense that he can sit on the heavens and use the earth as his footstool. At the same time, knowing that he's in heaven gives us great confidence. Gives us great confidence because we realize that he is a God who is powerful enough to answer all our prayers. The second thing that Jesus says is that he's our father. He's our father. He's near to us. Not only is he holy other, transcendent, holy, majestic, powerful, but he's near to us. He's our father. He's gracious, 
caring, approachable. He listens to us and wants us to come before him. And he wants to give us good gifts. He wants to count us as his children and allow us to call him dad. But what I think often happens is when we read the Lord's Prayer, we read over this label, our Father in heaven, really quickly, because we're so familiar with that phrase. It's been said so often, heavenly Father, our Father is in heaven. And we don't really think about how strong the phrase or the wording that Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, Father is. Here's why. For Jesus to teach his disciples... That audience at that time to say father is an epochal shift in the way they see God. It's a major shift in the way they see God. Because up to this point, the Hebrews, the Jews, would not utter the name of God in any way, shape, or form. They considered a violation of the third commandment. You shall not take your Lord's name in vain. They saw that as a violation of, his, of that commandment, to even speak his name. They considered it so holy that they wouldn't even venture to speak it. In fact, to this day, we know the Hebrew consonants that make up his name, which we usually pronounce Yahweh, which you guys have heard translated or transliterated from the German into Jehovah, which isn't really a good translation, but probably Yahweh. We, we know the consonants, but we actually don't know how to pronounce the consonants. We have to make something up because we don't know what the vowels were because no one ever pronounced it. That's how afraid to even invoke the name of God they were. And to those people, Jesus comes and says, when you pray, when you pray, say, dad, dad, king of the universe, dad, that rocked their world. That absolutely changed the way they saw God. It's an astounding change. And it's a change that assumes, hear what I'm saying? It's a change that assumes the event that we're here for, that we're here to celebrate. It's a change that assumes Christmas. For you see, it is the coming of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the work that he came to do that allows anyone to call God Father. If Jesus had not come, would not have the right to call God our Father in heaven. So we must understand Christmas. We must understand that apart from it, there is no right to call God our Father. You might respond. But I've heard the president and other leaders in the world say, all people are God's children. Aren't we all God's children? Yeah, Acts chapter 17 says that we're all seed of the creator. We're all God's children. He's the father of us all. Everyone, believer and unbeliever. However, in a very limited sense, he's the father of all people in the sense that he's their creator. And they're his offspring in that sense. But he is not the father of all people in the sense that he is our redeemer. In the sense that We are in a relationship with him in which we can approach him because what happened is that we were created for him and we sinned. We rejected him and went our own way and we became his enemies. 
In fact, the Bible says that as sinners, we are not by nature children of God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that by nature, we are children of wrath. Jesus says in John chapter 8 that we are children not of the Father, but of the devil. But God loved us. And he wanted to buy us out of slavery to sin and to adopt us as his children. God wanted to adopt us. Hear this. He wanted to adopt disobedient children. How many of you sign up for that adoption process? Give me the most disobedient ones you've got. That's who God wanted to adopt. Disobedient children. That's why he sent Jesus. He sent his eternally beloved son to be a man so that we could be adopted as children of God. In fact, if you want an explanation of Christmas, probably the best place to look is Galatians chapter 4. So turn there with me if you could. Galatians chapter 4. If you're not super familiar with your Bible, we're in the book of Matthew. After Matthew comes Mark, then Luke, then John, then Acts, then Romans, then 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians, then Galatians. If you've gotten to Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st or 2nd Thessalonians, etc., etc., you've gone too far. So just go to Galatians and chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. For an explanation of Christmas. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, Born of a woman, born under the law. First, Paul tells us this. He tells us the timing of Christmas. The timing of Christmas. When the fullness of time had come. This speaks of the appointed time of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. About 4 to 6 B.C., I know a lot of people think it's like in 0 B.C. There's, there's no 0 B.C. or 0 A.D. Right? There's 1 B.C. and then 1 A.D. Jesus was not born in 1 A.D. or in 1 B.C. He was born in approximately 4 to 6 B.C. We know that because Herod the king died in 4 B.C. Jesus was born before Herod the king died. We know that because the Magi go to see who? Herod. And they tell Herod about the fact that Jesus has been born after that, shortly after that, Herod dies. So somewhere, either in the fall or the spring, between, uh, between 4 and 6 B.C., Jesus was born. And what Paul says about that time is that at that day, when that woman, Mary, gave birth to a child, Paul makes that day a, an astounding claim. He says this, that day is when the fullness of time had come. I want you to hear how ridiculous that sounds. Because this is where we talk about the miraculous. We talk about something that unbelievers would say, that's foolishness. What Paul is saying is that day in 4 to 6 BC, in that little town of Bethlehem, the town of David, when this woman, Mary, the wife of Joseph, gave birth, As a virgin, she gave birth to a son. That birth was the arrival of the fullness of time. In other words, what he's saying is 
that little insignificant birth in that insignificant manger, which is probably like a cave where they keep their animals, that little insignificant birth in that little insignificant place, in the little insignificant town of Bethlehem, in a little insignificant country called Israel, in the midst of a grand Roman Empire, in that place, on that day, to a poor family, a poor woman who was despised, at that point was the fullness of time. At that point, all of history... All of God's creation happened to bring that day. That's an astounding claim. Second, Paul tells us the object or the person of Christmas. He says this, not only when the fullness of time had come, but what? The fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. And what he tells us is really two things about this baby. This baby, one, is God. He's the Son of God. He is himself divine. John chapter 1 also repeats this. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is God. That next thing Paul says, not only is he the Son of God, but he's born of woman. Born under the law, he's a man, fully like us, able to be our perfect representative, required to keep God's law. He must be the God-man. He has to be a man to be our representative in keeping God's law and paying our penalty. He has to be God in order to pay an eternal punishment for sin because when you sin against god you incur an infinite punishment because you're sinning against an infinite being so your offense is infinite therefore justice must also be and it requires god to pay that but he doesn't just tell us the timing and the person he tells us the purpose of why he came look at verse 5 Chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem. Here's the purpose. To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. He came as one born under the law to redeem those under the law. That's us. He came to keep the law on our behalf that we failed to. He came to keep it on our behalf. To live the perfect life that we didn't. And he came to pay the penalty for the violation of the law that's due to us. So that we could be redeemed. In other words, bought back. Freed from the coming wrath and slavery to sin. Why? Why do you want to redeem us? Paul goes further. Look at verse 5 again. To redeem those who are under the law so that. Here's a purpose clause. So that. So that what? We might receive adoption as sons. Why do you free us? 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is extremely important to understand Christmas. It's extremely important to understand prayer, why these two things go together. When we think of the nativity, we must remember that it's not just a cute story. It isn't just a nice thing to read to our children and celebrate once a year so family can get together and eat absurd amounts of food. That's what we do, right? At least I do. I don't know about the rest of you. It's the time when the Son of God became man to save us so that we could be adopted as sons. It's at Christmas that you celebrate God becoming man so you could be saved and adopted as a son. In other words, on the day Mary gave birth, on the day Mary gave birth, we saw the one, Jesus, who would make it possible for us to become children of God. Who would give us the privilege to know God and to pray. That's why the angels sing to the shepherds. You know when the shepherds in the field hear the angels singing? What do the angels sing? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with with whom he's pleased. What does he mean by peace? He's not talking about an end of war. He's talking about reconciliation between man and God. It is the arrival of the Christ that is sung by the angels in heaven as the point at which man is reconciled to God. It's what we're singing about. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. So that we could become sons. And look what he says in Galatians 4, 6. He carries it further. And because you were sons, because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba means dad. A lot of people translate it as daddy. Daddy is actually a little bit more familiar, especially because in this context, Paul is actually talking to them as adults. Saying to them, you know, father can be a little bit distant, right? A little bit distant in English. If we think about father, my son doesn't address me as father, right? It's a little distant. He addresses me as dad. That's probably about the right correlation between this Hebrew word. What Jesus says is, or what Paul says is that Jesus was sent to redeem me, to adopt me as a son, to pour his spirit into me so that as a son, I can cry out, Dad, Dad, will you help me? Dad, I love you. I rejoice in you. Dad, I need you. And I can say that to the God of the universe. That's why Christmas and prayer go together. Do you hear what Christmas began for you? It began for you the possibility that you have the right and power to cry out to the almighty, holy God of all things, Dad, Dad, I need you. It's the birth of Jesus, the natural, did you hear this? The natural son of God that began the possibility that we could become adopted sons of God. However, there's one event that Christmas points toward, that it was leading to, that I'd be remiss in not mentioning. And that's this. Christmas happened 
so Easter could come. Hear that? Christmas happened so Easter could come. Jesus came not just to be born, but he came to live the perfect life in our place and to die on a cross in our place. Uh, In fact, I want you to see the truth of this just from Jesus, Jesus' own prayer life. Every time Jesus prayed, he prayed this way, my father, or he prayed father every time. In every single case, Jesus, when he addressed God, when he cried out to God, when he prayed, he said, Father, Dad, Abba. That's what he said every time. That's what a natural son of God says to his father, right? A natural son, my son, I'm not a God, obviously, but my son comes to me as my natural son, and he says to me what? Dad. That's how he addresses me. Daddy, Dad. That's how a natural son addresses his father, And that's what Jesus did. We were meant to have that kind of relationship with God in which we could approach him that way. But our own sin separated us from him. And we could no longer, because of our sin, pray as children of our father who's in heaven. Because Jesus says our father is the devil if we're unbelievers. That's shocking. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, actually English Puritan, actually put it this way. We, as unbelievers, cannot pray our father who's in heaven. As unbelievers, we can only pray our father who is in hell. That's a shocking statement, isn't it? I don't think Jesus rejoiced in telling people that if you don't believe... Your father's the devil. I don't think he was ever excited about that. In fact, the scripture is very clear that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. That God desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. That's God's desire. As unbelievers, we're children. We are children as unbelievers. We were children of a father who's in hell. Strong statement. And thus we have no right to pray to our Father who's in heaven. But Jesus did have that right and he prayed. He prayed perfectly in our place. He lived perfectly in our place. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He lived the perfect life we failed to, and he did it for us. As the natural born son of God, he addressed God as father, as dad, as Abba, in every single one of his prayers except one. Do you know that? Except one. There was one instance in all the recorded prayers of Jesus and addresses of Jesus to his father in which he did not call him father. And that one prayer is probably the most significant prayer as to why we can address him as father, why we can call him dad. And that is the prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross. On the cross, Jesus prayed this, Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. The ninth hour is about three o'clock in the afternoon. Their clock started about 6 a.m. 
Started at 6 a.m., 3 o'clock in the afternoon is the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus is on the cross. He's been up there for several hours. He cries out, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus was on the cross, the Father's wrath that was due to us was turned on Him. Jesus prayed a prayer that is the prayer of one experiencing eternal separation from God. And He prayed it in our place. He didn't cry out, Dad, Father, Abba, why have you forsaken me? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus became the enemy of God. Hear this. The natural born son of God became the enemy of God on the cross. He became the recipient of God's wrath in our place so we could be adopted as sons. He prayed the prayer of eternal separation so that we can pray the prayer of eternal closeness or nearness. Jesus cried out the prayer that will be heard. Hear this. Jesus cried out the prayer that will be heard from people in hell for eternity. My God. You want to know what they're praying in hell? My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Jesus prayed that on the cross in our place so that we, so that we could pray, so that we could cry out to the holy sovereign king of all things, the prayer of a son, our father, Abba, dad, who's in heaven. And we can do so knowing that our father in heaven. We can do so knowing that our father in heaven knows what we need. Our father in heaven knows what we need. That he wants to give good gifts to his children. That he's able to do more than we can ever ask Or think that he promises to do good to us. By the way, you know those are all attached to scripture. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. God knows your father, Jesus says, knows what you need before you even ask. Matthew chapter 7. If you, an evil man, can give to your son good gifts, how much more your father who's in heaven How much more can he give his children good gifts? Ephesians chapter 3. God is able to give us more than we ever, abundantly more than we ever ask or think. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. Says that God will work all things, all things together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. Hebrews chapter 6 says that God 
cannot lie and never fails to keep his promise. In other words, we have a father who knows what we need, who wants to do good to us, who's able to do more than we can ever ask or think, who promises to do good to us, and who says of himself, I am not a liar, and I can never, ever violate my promises. What an awesome privilege it is to be adopted as a son of God because of the work, because of the coming and the work of the son of God on my behalf. However, I want to make this statement clear. This privilege to pray, this privilege to pray is only available to those who are adopted into the family. So the question is this, how do we become children of God? How does that happen? How is the work of Jesus Christ applied to us so that we can call God father? How does that occur? John chapter one, the gospel of John chapter one, verse 12 says this, but to all who did receive him, that's speaking about Jesus. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to those he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, the way we get into this family, the way we're adopted in this family is by receiving him, by believing that Jesus is who he said he is. You know what happens when you believe, when you trust in Christ when you see him, what, what Paul says in, in second Corinthians is that, is this, that our eyes have been blinded by the God of this world. We've been blinded by the God of this world so that we, we cannot see the light of the gospel. What's the gospel? That word means good news so that we cannot see the light of the good news of the gospel. And what's the good news of the glory of Christ. So that we can't see that. Do you know what happens when you receive him? When you believe? What happens is your spiritual eyes are opened. Your heart is open. Your ears are open. You see Jesus for all he is. You are like the picture of Isaiah in chapter 6. When Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. You see him. And as Isaiah say, when I saw him, I said, woe is me for I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. When you see, when God opens your eyes to see the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ, when you see that you say, holy is God, wretched am I. I'm a sinner and he is gracious and holy and God heals you. God sends his spirit into you and changes you. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, behold, the old things are gone. The new has come. Why? Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're changed. 
changed. You desire to keep God's law rather than being a burden. When you see the holiness of God, you rejoice in it. And when you see your sin, you're not afraid to admit it or to recognize it. You see it and it's abhorrent to you. But you're not becoming excessively introspective, turned in on yourself. Because you see it, it's abhorrent to you. And then you see Jesus there on the cross. And you recognize, you recognize that on that cross, God treated you, God treated Jesus as if he lived your life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, sin for us. He treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived our lives. God made him who knew no sin, sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, when you receive Christ by faith, you recognize that Jesus was treated as if he lived your life on the cross so that you can be treated as if you lived his. So that when you come to Christmas and you celebrate this glorious time of the year when our Messiah came, you can say, not God, I, I'm afraid to come before you. I feel distant from you. I don't know you. You can say, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those, as we forgive those who have debts against us. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Dad, Abba, you're good. We rejoice in you. That's the cry of a Christian. That's the prayer of a Christian. And that was made possible by Christmas. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you that you have made yourself clear in your word and in the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would rejoice in you rightly. We pray for those, Lord, who have not received you, who have not believed in your name, that you would work in them powerfully, that they would turn to you in repentance and faith, and they would cry out to you, Dad, I need you. I love you. I'm thankful for you. Thank you for what Jesus did on the cross for me. Lord, for those who believe, we pray that we would rejoice in this time of year, recognizing what it's about. The coming of your son and the privilege for us to be adopted as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. So the band sings the next three songs.